the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property law. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. However, I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, that is to say, focusing on consumers and small businesses. In, in my areas include debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic economy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat and will always be one, and I also helped create another military brat with my former spouse who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families leave the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. You know, I was raised by a wonderful father who instilled in me the need to give back to my community and our society as a whole. And on top of that, I hung around with my grandmas, who, and as such, they also believed in the same thing as my dad. And these women are, were really wonderful in my uh, view because they survived the four great economic challenges of the 20th century, that is to say the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through and to our society today by saying, get behind me, Satan, with your badass attitude. <laughs> As these women helped raise me and loved me and shared with me the stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South. 
that I got a little taste of. It is out of my great love and respect for these women who were always with me, urging me on along with my dad that when the situation is right, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and the disabled who find themselves targets of and more and more, unfortunately, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and adult elder financial abuse that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss, discuss the law uh, related to your money and more probably than not these days due to inflation, the lack thereof, or at least an insignificant or insufficient amount thereof, and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your family's or your business's financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again, as always, ask you to please note that this show doesn't give any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need, if you have an illegal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. So today um, we're going to continue this discussion. I started last fall about our Native American cousins and how and why we must support them in their ongoing fight for their sovereign, political, judicial, economic, and environmental rights. Right here in America, where Indian country is all around us. So I must once again say, it's about time we give our first Americans their long overdue respect. Now, last year in September of 2022, I produced three shows that wherein I share with you some vital information about our first cousins, including information about the five Native American women who thus far have been elevated to the federal judiciary to call balls and strikes on motions, um, evidentiary matters and discovery disputes, and then based on a fair interpretation of evidence submitted and guided by the applicable statutes and legal precedent, issue rationally based decisions, opinions and judgments on disputes placed before them without fear or favor um, that are of key importance to all of us, whether we as individual members of the public believe these matters are important or not. I also shared with you my impression of a presentation put on by the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, where I hang out, entitled Northern District's 2020 Power Act Panel, Using Partnerships and Culture to Solve Community Challenges. And they were focusing on domestic violence, dependency, and adult wellness amongst our indigenous brothers and sisters who live on tribal land. And I also shared with you information about how seven, now six, Native Americans who have been elected by members of their overall multi-ethnic, multicultural communities to serve all of us in Congress, including 
in the this number are two who are attracting a lot of attention last year and this year, including Deb Holland, who before she became President Biden's Secretary of the Interior, represented her constituents in Arizona. And of course, I spent a lot of time sharing with you the story of Mary Portola, who had a surprise victory last fall. 2020, when she beat out Sarah Palin in a special election uh, in Alaska to fill out the term of the deceased incumbent and became the first Alaska native and first Eskimo to be elected to Congress. And then she went on in, in November to be elected on her own right. Now, those of you who know me know I spent a lot of time in Alaska. I was half raised up in Alaska and I got relatives who are uh, Alaska native. So I'm just a really big fan of Ms. Portola. And I like the way she handles herself in public. And she's not very, uh, in my opinion, partisan. She just wants to do what's right for all the citizens of Alaska. So that's why she's a big deal to me. And I also share with you the fact that while I attended the 2022 California Lawyers Association annual meeting in San Diego last fall, where I was invited to talk about SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. These were really hot and uh, the thing to be involved in for the last five years, but they've kind of like petered out. They were inexpensive mechanisms for mergers and initial public offering for companies wanting to go public without all the formalities and regulations and supervisions of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So while my presentation meant a lot to me, what I really, really enjoyed about that annual meeting was I got to hear a great presentation by three Native American women lawyers about what I consider to be the distortions of interpretation of American law and the similarities, dissimilarities between U.S. tribal versus non-tribal law and non-tribal law, tribal and non-tribal courts based on whether the crime or the civil cause of action or offense took place on tribal land and whether the defendant happened to be a member of the tribe where the offense took place. And that was truly fascinating and illuminating and quite depressing to me from a moral point of view. Which brings me to today's topic. I want to talk about two key decisions that were issued by our United States Supreme Court this week. One that found that Native American tribes are units of the federal government and as such, their sovereign immunity has been abrogated, that means done away with, when they are acting as creditors in a bankruptcy proceeding. A conclusion I question based on the long trail of mistreatment by our government that, in my opinion, have made tribes wards and not full-fledged subunits of our federal government. While the other case, the Supreme Court, upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, a conclusion I applaud. So when we come back, we'll discuss these two cases. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion with me sharing with you 
very exciting news that took place earlier this week that relate to a vital segment of the American community that far too few of us take time to learn about. And even if we know about this segment of our community, we don't do much of anything with that knowledge. And we should. I'm talking about our Native American brothers and sisters and cousins, and some of us have them for real, and their ongoing fight for their sovereign, political, judicial, and economic rights right here in America, where Indian country is really all around us. And I say it's about time we give our the first Americans their long overdue respect. Now, before the break, I stated that there were two key tribal matter decisions issued by the Supreme Court this week on June 15, 2023. One case denominated as the La Deux Flambeurs Ban of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians at Al versus Coughlin. That in that matter, the court found that Native American tribes were units of the federal government, and as such, their sovereign immunity must be abrogated, meaning their sovereign immunity, their their right to not be sued or not uh, have uh, courts force decisions on, on them. That's what sovereign immunity means, must be abrogated. That means set aside. When acting, when these entities, when these tribes are acting as creditors in a bankruptcy proceeding. And as as I stated, a conclusion I question, while the other case denominated as Hallen, who's the secretary of the interior, one of the ladies that I talked about who uh, a Native American, she is the secretary, our secretary of the interior versus Bracken et al., In that case, the Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, a conclusion I applaud. Now, in Hallen versus Bracken, according to its syllabus, this case arises where or from three separate child custody proceedings governed by the Indian Child Welfare Act, a federal statute that aims at keeping Indian children connected to their Indian families. Now, the Indian Child Welfare Act governs state court adoptions and foster care proceedings involving Indian children. Among other things, the act requires the placement of Indian children according to the act's hierarchical preferences unless a state court finds good cause to depart from them. And uh, the act is found in our big book of laws in Title 25 of the United States Code at sections 1915 A and B. Now, under those preferences, that hierarchical preferences, Indian families or institutions from any tribe, not just the tribe from which the child has a tie, outrank unrelated non-Indian non-Indian institutions. Further, the child's tribe may pass a resolution altering the priority. The preferences of the Indian child or her parents generally cannot trump those of the statutes or what the tribe comes up with on their own right. In in voluntary proceeding, the acts mandate that the Indian child's parents or 
custodians and the tribe be given notice of any custodial proceedings, as well as the right to intervene. Now, uh, it also requires that a party seeking to terminate parental rights or to remove an Indian child from an unsafe environment has to satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitative programs designed to prevent breakup of the Indian family. And the courts cannot order relief unless the party demonstrates by a heightened burden of proof and with expert testimony that the child is likely to suffer serious emotional and physical damage if the parent or Indian uh, custodian retains custody. Now, even for voluntary proceedings, A biological parent who gives up an Indian child cannot necessarily choose the foster or adoptive parents of their child. The child's tribe has the right to intervene at any point of the proceedings to place the child in foster care or to terminate parental rights, as well as the right to collaterally attack the state court's custody decree after the fact that's what collateral means, collateral attack anyway. The tribe can uh, sometimes enforce the Indian Child Welfare Act placement preferences against the wishes of both one or both of the biological parents, even after the child has been living with a new family. And finally, the states must keep certain records related to the child's placement and transmit that records to the Secretary of Interior on all final adoption decrees uh, uh, specified by the um, provisions of the statute. Now, what brought this case about was um, the petitioners was a birth mother and foster and adoptive parents in the state of Texas. They filed a suit in federal court against the United States and other federal parties. Several Indian tribes intervened to defeat the law along side the federal parties. Petitioners challenged the Indian Child Welfare Act as unconstitutional on multiple grounds. They asserted that Congress lacked the authority to enact the act and uh, that several of the act's requirements violated the anti-commandeering principles of the Tenth Amendment. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Tenth Amendment is a catch-all residual amendment that states, it's just one sentence long, the powers not delegated to the United States by our Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved for the state, respectively, or to the people. So what their argument was that Uh, By mandating that states had to do certain things or not do certain things, the states were being commandeered, that is to forced into support of this um, law against their will. So it's these people who were bringing the petitions were basically states rights advocates. And they argued that the Indian Child Welfare Act employs racial classifications that unlawfully hinder non-Indian families from fostering or adopting Indian children. And they challenged the section of the act that allowed the tribes to alter the prioritization on the grounds that it violated the non-delegation doctrine. 
of the Constitution. So the district court agreed with the petitioners um, on a summary judgment. That's uh, um, where you, the court decides a matter without having to go through all of the steps of a lawsuit and basically makes the decision based on the papers. Um, the Fifth Circuit, who is the higher uh, higher court in uh, of the district court, concluded that the ICWA does not exceed Congress legislative powers. So they overturned the lower court and the matter got popped up to the Supreme Court. And there the Supreme Court basically decided that uh, it agreed uh, that some of the issues of the raised by the petitioners, such as the Tenth Amendment or argument, um, uh, and the requirement for expert witnesses and record keeping, were unconstitutional, and it did commandeer commandeer uh, the states and force them to do things that, against their will. And because it delivered um, evenly with respect to other challenge provisions, notice provisions, and other things, placement of record creeping requirements of Fifth Circuit assur- affirmed the holding that the requirements violated the Tenth Amendment. However, the court declined to disturb the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that the Indian Child Welfare Act was constitutional and it was consistent with um, the Congress's Article One authority. So um, the um, Native American community can have more control over the disposition of children, uh, their children that are members of the tribe. Now, the other uh, case is the um, the Chippewa Indians versus Cochran, and here the Native American ban is a federally recognized Indian tribe, and one of their businesses. Um, uh, known as Lind Green, extended the respondent, Brian Coughlin, a payday loan. And shortly after receiving the loan, uh, Mr. Coughlin filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy, triggering an automatic stay under the bankruptcy code against further collection efforts by the creditors, the the tribe. Um, The Lind Green uh, allegedly continued attempting to collect Mr. Coughlin's debt. And Mr. Coughlin filed a motion in the bankruptcy court to enforce the automatic stay and recover damages that were harmed. So the automatic stay is this big umbrella. It's like a, it's the force field for uh, the Starship Enterprise. It comes on automatically as soon as someone files for a bankruptcy. But the question here was whether um, a, a sovereign that's not part of the United States government, per se, has to give up its sovereign right to not be sued. That's one of the big things in uh, uh, for sovereignty. Um, so the bankruptcy court, court held that the code unambiguously abrogates, that is to say, set aside sovereign immunity of all governments, including federally recognized Indian tribes. Now, they look at at two provisions of the bankruptcy code and a lot of definitions that basically say that uh, uh, what is a governmental unit? It's United States, a state, commonwealth, district, territory, municipality, a foreign state, department, agency, or instrumentality of the United States, a state, a commonwealth. Again, it goes on and on. So 
the Supreme Court said that the um, Congress has succinctly stated that an Indian tribe as an entity of the federal government loses its sovereign immunity. That's the, the crux of the case. But here's the rub. At Title 25 of the United Code, that big book of laws that I keep talking about periodically, at Section 1901, which set forth the congressional finding necessary to implement the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 that we discussed uh, earlier, that the Supreme Court had just sustained, it clearly states the following, recognizing the special relationship between the United States and Indian tribes and their members, the federal responsibility to Indian people, Congress finds that Clause 3, Section 8 of Article 1 of the United States Constitution provides that the Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with Indian tribes. And through this and other constitutional authorities, Congress has preliminary plenary power over Indian affairs. So rule me this, Batman, if all for all intents and purposes, the federal government has absolute power over Indians in a master ward relationship. Are Indian tribes really independent sovereigns? Or are they really subunits of the federal government by force? Or are they some other known neither fish nor fowl uh, entity with or without sovereignty? That's a big question. I've done some research on this and, and find that the suit you, the Supreme Court over time has created a legal framework and policy to treat the sovereignty of Native American tribes as if it exists sometimes and it doesn't exist at other times to the convenience of the government. So that makes me wonder if this is just not another facade. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anybody, but I just want to put that out there for you to think about it. If, you know, if Indian tribes are not don't have the quantum of sovereignty needed to be respected via treaty the way Canada, the UK and uh, states, the state of California is, is this not just a made up trumped up provision to allow us to continue to exploit Native American tribes? Just food for thought. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there for now. But always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including putting in place laws that protect the varied interests in our society as a whole, including the interests of our tribal cousins. Till next time. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to SelwynWhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.